family so great to be with you this morning yeah we uh, there are so many things that we can celebrate this morning we celebrate just this uh, generational handover uh, we celebrate the fact that Jonathan is not here no Lindy we're not celebrating <laughs> it's so great to celebrate with us because Jono while we are busy preaching here he's preaching in Utrecht with Philip Mareka and the team as well and uh, isn't that just something just to give the Lord a big hand for? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when Moritz was just talking about Utrecht, I was just thinking, Lord, what a great thing it is, that country. And there was about the fact that people would answer the call to go to another country. And there, uh, Jonathan is now with the team. He's busy doing some review and assessment there with them just hearing their hearts, sitting and listening to them as well. I said to Jono, Jono, when you go, just sit and listen. He says, Harry, that is it. And Jono is a great listener and also, you know, a great encourager as well, a real, real good pastor. So uh, he will pastor the, you know, the team there for a while. For a while. Last week, uh, Jonathan preached a powerful with, uh, uh, message about Shabbat and just about the command, the comment, the boast, you know, and we're still busy in our undignified series. And the word that we've got for today is Barak. So this is our last preach in our undignified series. And when we think about the word Barak, you know, it says, it means to us to kneel, to bless God as an act of adoration, to bow down in adoration and worship, or to fall down to fall down before God. And as we go through the word this morning, you know, we will see that, you know, if we bring our hearts in a contrite way to God, you know, it will be so easy to kneel. It will be so easy to fall down before God because He is the only safe place that we have to do that. Let us read this morning. Uh, this, the reading comes from 2 Samuel 11. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open it up, or your phones. We want to read from 2 Samuel 11, from verse 1 to verse 5. I'm reading from the ESV. It says there, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out in battle. You know, that was interesting for me to read. It's like hunting season, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. David sent Joab and his servants with him all and all Israel, and they ravaged the Amorites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late, one late afternoon, when, sorry, when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eli, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
So David sent his messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we want to hear from you. Thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, thank you that uh, you come to us, Lord, so loving. Lord, this, this morning when we sang that, Jesus, you are the reason. Lord, you stay the reason. And Lord, for one moment, if we can forget that you're the reason why we live, we have our being, that our life is in you, Lord. Lord, then truly we've lost everything. So, Lord, as we ponder on your word today, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll speak to us. And, Lord, that we will see Christ high and lifted up. Because, Lord, that is our hope and our eternal hope forever. And, Father, thank you that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, for us to understand just today's scripture, you know, we have to go a few chapters back to 2 Samuel 7, and we have to look at David's, David's life just to understand the absolute strategy of this moment. So we see that David, if we go and read there through chapter 7, David is at the absolute height of his reign. You know, he has had great victories. Think about it. You know, he is 15 years old, anointed as a king. From there on, you know, God has been with him. Saul hunted him. We've, we've listened to that. But God has been with David. And all the battles, you know, he has won. Goliath, all of those battles, you know, God has been with him. So David is in a good place himself. He's in a good place with God as well. And he was, you know, thinking, well, Lord, uh, I'm so thankful for my life, and I would love to give something back to you. And then he says, Lord, you know, you are living in a tent, that was the tabernacle of those, at, you know, at that time, and I'm living in a palace. Lord, I want to build, your, uh, you know, a, a, a great temple for you. And uh, he was sharing that with Nathan, Nathan the prophet, just, um, I'm sure that that was just a friendly conversation. And he said, Nathan, this is what I want to do. And Nathan says to him, you know, if that is your heart, do it. Nathan goes home, God speaks to Nathan, and he says, no, Nathan, David cannot build my temple, and, uh, you know, there's another plan that I've got. I want Solomon, your, you know, David's son, to, to build that temple. So Nathan goes back, but with that, you know, Nathan brings a word to David, and as we read in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16, most probably one of the most important uh, verses in the Old Testament. That, uh, you know, he says to him then, uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 6, verse 6 and he says, uh, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 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 You know, in that, that's the Davidic covenant that God makes with David. God speaks to him. Now, just think, you know, David is at a good place. He's, uh, you know, he's got his kingdom He's in a good place with God. 
He's in a good place with, uh, you know, in his relationship towards God. And here God comes and promises him, says, David, your kingdom will last forever. Forever. Double, God says that to him. You know, it reminds me just about, if you think about that forever, uh, you know, it is that Jesus will still come. In other words, the shadow of what is to come is basically depicted there in this scripture here. Like I said, one of the most important scriptures. Uh, when I was still in Botswana, I was, uh, I was having a group of men, traditional leaders, uh, priests, none of them were serving the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, of course. Some of them were, you know, traditional healers as well. So we were sitting once a, once a month, and then we had these conversations. And one of the little towns that we were in, small little village, Takatukwanu, had an old Lutheran church. And there were no more Lutherans there. The Lutherans just built it and left. Uh, so now we were sitting in this Lutheran church early, early, early one morning. So I'll go through the night before, sleep there, and then I've got these meetings early with them there. And we were talking about Jesus and the, the shadow of Jesus from the Old Testament. Because their understanding of Jesus was, you know, that you know, he was the, the son, the small son. He's got no say in the Bible. And uh, I was just not getting this message through to them. And the door was open and the sun is on the other side of the door. And there was a long shadow of, uh, you know, like a piece of light that comes in from the door. And I said, you know, hang on a moment. And I went, and they all sitting on this side. And I actually stood outside. And as I stood outside, my shadow was like a long shadow into the church. I said, and I spoke from outside. They said, can you hear me? They said, no, no, they can hear me. I said, and if I move my arms, can you see me moving? They can see me. I said, but the shadow, is it me? They said, no, it is you. I said, no, no. I'm standing outside. My shadow is not me, but it is the reflection of me that you can see. So even though they couldn't see me. And this scripture is exactly the same. You know, it is the shadow of Christ that from this moment on would be up to past revelation as well. It speaks about Christ. 2 Samuel 7, 18 to 19. David is there. God promised him that his kingdom will be forever. And then, you know, in that, uh, from verse 18 to 29, there's the prayer of David, a beautiful, beautiful prayer where he praises God just for all the goodness that God has done for him. And then for two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 10, you know, or 8 to 10, we see all the battles, all the good things listed in David's life. But then, chapter 11. So we pick up the story there after Bathsheba sends the message now that she, she is pregnant. And David thinking, you know, my goodness, I should do something about that. My dignity is at stake here. You know, what will people think about me? And immediately he makes a plan. He says, well, he will bring Bathsheba's husband back from the battle. And, you know, then he will tell him, well, go to your house. And, of course, he's been on the battlefield for some time. Obviously, you know, he will spend some time with his wife. And then the matter is sorted out. Uriah comes back, David speaks to him and says, how's it going on the battle? And he gets a good report and he says, go to your wife. And Uriah goes out and he sleeps at the gate of uh, you know, the, the, the palace. He doesn't go home. Because if he had to go home, you know, that means that he would have been unclean because a soldier 
had to first purify himself before he goes to battle. He cannot spend time with his wife while he's in battle, so he would have been unclean. He's the husband. He can go. So he's got the legitimate right to go to his wife. But Uriah's worship to God is, I cannot do this. My wife is there. Even if my king asks me to do that, I cannot do it. Because God is greater than that. So David hears that he's, he didn't go to his wife. So the next night, he brought him in again. Now he gives him a great feast. He makes him drunk. And then hoping that in his drunkenness, he will go to his wife. Even if the king asked him, even if he was most probably intoxicated, that wasn't a big enough reason for him to dishonor God. So David said, well, now we have to step it up. He writes a letter, sends it with Uriah's hand back to Joab, the commander, and says to him, send Uriah in front of the battle, and at the fiercest part of the battle, pull back so that he can be killed. Uriah goes with that letter, his death sentence, and he gives it, and so it happened that Uriah is dead. So Joab sends a message back to David, and he says, the matter has been settled. So if we think about sin, you know, there's actually a study of sin. It's called hematology, hematology, the study of sin. You know, then we see the effect of sin in a person's life. It says the way of sin is downhill. When men begun, begin to do evil, they cannot soon stop. Or there's aggravation and a downward spiral in sin. Don't we see that with David now? Giving away to sin hardens the heart. Well, he said, you know, my dignity was for him more important than the word of God. Let Uriah say that. So at that moment, David, all he wanted was to cover his sin. And all the lies and every single thing that he did just to cover his sin. Robbing a man of his reason is worse than robbing him of his money. And drawing him into sin is worse than drawing him into any worldly trouble. Sin seldom shows itself all at once or even as sin at all. The temptation to sin is usually more subtle than that. And then, once in the grip of sin, one is taken to a place one never intended to go and held longer than one ever intended to stay. David violated every single trust and every single promise that was laid to him. He was the king. He was the representation of actually God to people as well. Well, with the prophet as well, but, you know, as the rule of God. And he violated that as well. You know, when we think about that whole chapter, and throughout the life of David, we hear God with David, God with David, God with David. But in that whole chapter, there's not once that, a word, that the word of the name of God is mentioned. Not once. And isn't it like that with sin as well? As soon as we want to justify sin, immediately the reason of God goes by the wayside as well. But then we see in chapter two, uh, yeah, uh, Samuel 2, verse 12, here Nathan comes to, he's the prophet, he comes to David, and he tells David a story about a rich man that had everything that he wanted. There was a poor man, and he had one little lamb. 
and somebody came to visit the rich man and he wanted to give him a feast. So he went to fetch the lamb of the poor man and he uses the word and he slaughters the small little lamb and he uses it for himself. And David com completely enraged, you know, he says, who is that man? You know, he must die. How in the world can he do that? But then David, Nathan turns around and he says, you are that man. You are that man. So let's read there from verse 9 to Samuel 12, verse 9. He says, you have despised the word of the Lord and do what is evil in his sight. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and you've killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart your house because you've despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and they shall lie with your wives in the sight of sin. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before Israel and before the sun. No sin is private. No sin is private. If we think just a little bit fast forward quickly with David's life, Exactly what was promised here happened. His son Absalom took over. His son Absalom took his wife, and that, you know, he was with her on the roof of that same palace that David stood. And from there on, there was a downward spiral of David's life. So much so that, you know, two of his sons were killed with a, with a sword. Eventually, you know, Solomon marries all of the different wives as well. And from there, the north and the south, after the, the, you know, the whole Israel is torn in two, the north and the south um, kingdoms. Everything that David had built up and fought for, he lost. The effect of sin. Now, if we think about that downward spiral, you know, we can think, well, the question that comes to us is, you know, that is David. And look how David handles his sin. But I would think that the Bible would, and the Lord would speak to us today and say, you know, how do we handle our sin? Because if we read the Bible and we, you know, and, we, and we see there's a story in the Bible, the first thing that we should ask is, Lord, where do I fit into the story here? How do I handle my sin? Do I hide it? Do I cover it? Do I find excuses for it? Do I try to reason to say, well, Lord, my sin is not so bad as the next one? I mean, just think about David. You know, murderer, adulterer, and, you know, and we carry on, and the list is long, just about every sin, ten of our ten commandments he broke. I'm not like that, Lord. As long as we are better than the other person, you know, we still think that we have got an excuse. But what does David do? Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Just like that. I've sinned against the Lord. From that place where he was so dignified that he tried to cover his sin, he comes to the place and says, I've sinned. And I don't find the reason for that sin after that. It's, there's a full stop there. I have sinned, full stop. He doesn't, doesn't try to reason about God and, you know, you know, and maybe you know, uh, it's because I was no reason. Undignified. But the most astonishing thing is just the reply of Nathan. Immediately after that, he says, Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. 
you shall not die. The very next sentence. So we ask ourselves, you know, um, Lord, how is it possible? I've sinned, your sin is forgiven. The Lord has put away your sin. It means that it's no more. If God has put something away, who, who are we to go and pick it up again? God has put it away. Verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall not die. Whatever we do in sin, there's no fruit, good fruit that can come from that. There's no good thing that can come from that. So for us to answer, you know, what happened, you know, in that verse, we have to look, you know, a little bit further. And then we can see there in Psalm 32, and then also in Psalm 51, something happened in David's life. And unless this also would happen in our lives, you know, we will still be trying to dignify ourselves every single time that we make a mistake. And this is not a one day, uh, you know, like a one sort of thing. This is a every single day that we should live before the Lord. Psalm 32, verse 3 to 5 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning, uh, through my groaning all day, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin, number one. Number two, I didn't cover up my iniquity. Number three, I will confess my transgressions before the Lord. And you forgave my iniquity and my sin. I acknowledge. I'm not covering it up. I will confess. I will completely be completely undignified in the way that I confess my sin. So if we think about, you know, what was David's response of, our, of his sin, then we see it actually a bit more clear there in Psalm 50, 51. Psalm 51 verse 1 says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. First, David turns to the only hope that he has, and that is the mercy and love of God. If we don't come to that point where we see, well, you know, there's nothing that I can do. David came to the point, and Lord, I tried to cover it. I murdered and all the other things that go with it, Lord. And look where it got, it got me. It got me in a worse place than I've ever, ever been. And that's what sin does. And then he comes back to the love and the mercy of God. God is still there, loving and merciful for him as well. Three times he says, he says, Lord, have mercy. According to, this, to your steadfast love. God has gone, no, you know, he hasn't got anywhere. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's still in the same place. It's not God that moved away. It's David that moved away. Your steadfast love. And number three, according to your abundant mercy. I was sitting once on the beach, and I was thinking, and I was looking at the sea. I was just looking at all of those waves coming, and God says to me, you know, I felt in my heart, that is my mercy. As sure as the waves come, my mercy will come. My mercy and grace. My mercy and grace. My mercy and grace. And that is, that is what we have in God. The first thing he does is to, to turn helplessly to the mercy and love of God. And he turns, today what we do is, you know, the only thing that we can do is to turn helpless to Christ. Because if we still think that we've got any strength, you know, to work on our sin, we don't have. The only thing that we can do is to turn helpless to Christ. Number two, he prays for cleansing of his sin. 
That is uh, uh, verse 2 and verse 7. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now hyssop is, the, is like a, you know, a little branch that they took the blood, sprinkled it you know, on, the, on, the, on the post the, you know, from the lamb. And then, you know, God passed over. That is the first time there in Egypt. And from there on, you know, that hyssop was also used in the temple to sprinkle the blood throughout the temple for the forgiveness of sin. So the high priest will do that. But we have got a high priest, and his blood was sprinkled for us as well for the forgiveness of our sin. In the same way, you know, uh, David is calling out. He says, you know, Lord, cleanse me. Now, he asks, now Jesus has come, his blood has flowed on the cross, and we have that as a forgiveness for sin, but it doesn't mean, you know, we don't have to ask. Of course, that forms the basis of our asking, the fact that there is the cross that stands there, and we come, can come to God and ask for the forgiveness of our sins. David, again, looks helplessly at the mercy of God. He says, Lord, cleanse me. Number three, he, conf uh, you know, he confesses the seriousness of his sin. This is the place where, where David's heart is rendered. You know, really, like, if you can think about it, pulled apart, and he sits before God, and he says, God, you know, I have to confess my sin because of your holiness and what I've done. And he takes full responsibility of his sin. First, you know, he says, I can't get the sin out of his mind. It's like the Lord keeps it like a blanket over him all the time. He says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sins is ever before me. Secondly, you know, he, he sees that exceeding sinfulness in his life. He says, uh, verse 4, he says, Against you and only you have I sinned, and I've done what is evil in the sight of God. Nathan says to David, You've despised God. You have despised God. That is what our sin does. Thirdly, David vindicates God and not himself. There are no excuses, no self-justification. There are no buts. It's just, I've sinned. So in that, God is justified. You know, God is just, and God stays just. Even if God would, would cast David into a hell there, God will still be right, because God is just and David was not. That is a radical, God-centered repentance. That we come to that place and say, Lord, I have no excuse for my sin. I cannot live with my sin and for you as well. And number four, he pleads for a new one. He says, create in me a new heart, Lord. Restore my joy of my salvation. Think about that. You know, from that place of complete, from a contrite heart where Lord, I cannot go any further. It's Lord, I've hit this wall, and my sin is before me. And my joy has been stolen, Lord, because I'm just thinking about the consequences of my sin, thinking about Uriah was his friend. Joab, Joab, was, uh, Joab was his friend. That was his commander, but this was his friend. He fought with, with, with Uriah. They were together in battle, and he killed him, or had him killed. It's the same thing. Lord, my sin is slowly drowning me. Then the joy of the Lord comes at forgiveness. And unless we find that joy, we don't have it. Verse, in Psalm 32, verse 11, it says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. And again in Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips, 
and my mouth that I will declare your praise after I've been forgiven. And I love verse 13. It says there, and, when, uh, and then I will teach transgressors your way. You know, we'll, you know if, 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 if unbelievers will see that, that must bring honor to God. That must bring them to God and say, well, you know, that is so, so unlike the world because undignified we will deal with our sin. At this point, you know, we can say, well, David, well done. You know, you've done it. I love the way that you deal with your sin, but I don't think that this is what God would want to say to us today. I, do, I believe that God would want to stop at our lives today and again, he would ask us, so how do we feel or how do we deal with our sin? Again, you know, are we trying to cover up our sin? Do we sit with something in our heart, you know, that we've been battling and, and we think that, you know, we are, because if we handle it in a dignified way for nobody to see it, it will go away. David says it doesn't. It stays with you. It's like a blanket covering you. You know, it's so difficult to, to, to praise God and know that this thing is over me. Nathan said to David, you are the man. But maybe, you know, the Holy Spirit, Nathan the prophet, but the Holy Spirit and his prophetic way that he works in our lives as well, is lifting something up in your life and in my life today as well. What is that thing that God speaks to you about just like I tried to explain to you about that shadow, in the same way, you know, David had that shadow of Christ for forgiveness that came over him, that the moment that he said, I have sinned, Nathan said, God has put your sin away. It's for us to come and to say, well, Lord, I have sinned, or I have this thing in my life. Lord, forgive me. The same way that that, that the righteousness of Christ that was there, we today sit already on the other side. We can see, you know, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is there for us. He died on the cross. Listen to what he says to us in Romans 3, verse 21 to 26. He says to us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. All, the, uh, all through the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is from the time of David. From 2 Samuel 7, we see that promise that came. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Listen to this. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one of us this morning that can say, well, it is, that is not me. Every single one of us is sitting exactly in the same place. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Now, if the Bible had to end there, then of course, you know, that would have been utterly terrible for us. Total destruction. Because where can we go if all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God? Means that whatever we do, you know, we can never ever attain to the holiness of God. We can never ever be with Him. That story of that, the great divide. We're sitting on this side and God is on that side. And because of our sin, the best that we can give ourselves is eternal death because that is the payment of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen what 24 says. And are justified, sorry, glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. There is justification. 
through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God had put forward as a propitiation by his blood, or in his place of his blood, to be received by faith. That same shadow that David saw is for us here today as well. Verse 25 says, uh, verse, yeah, verse 25, by whom God has put forth in the propitiation of his blood to be received by faith. This was how God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. And this, sorry, it was how his righteousness at the present time, so that what he might be justified and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That, we, that he might be just and the justifier. So the question that Jesus would want to ask us this morning, I do believe, is Jesus the justifier of your life? Because that is where we need to start. If we say that all have fall short of the glory of God, have you come to the justifier, Jesus Christ, and say, just like David, Lord, yours, my, my sin has completely covered me. Lord, and there's no way that I can go unless I put my faith in Jesus Christ. That is the moment that we, that we come and first and foremost, if we've never given our life to Jesus, we come to you and say, Lord, I need you to forgive my sin. That's the starting place. Unless I've given my life to Jesus, I still fall short. And there's no forgiveness for my sin. That's the first place. And I, secondly, if I've come to the place where I said, yes, Jesus, you are the justifier. You are the one that has justified me just as if I have never sinned because I've given my life to Jesus. My life is under the blood of Christ. Then I still love, uh, live every single day being sanctified. In the same way as David sit, sat before the Lord, in the same way, we sit daily and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that is still there that is a hindrance between me and you? And in the same way that David so made business with his sin, we need to do that. Because as we read about sin, you know, it comes slowly, but then it takes everything. C.H. Spurgeon says to us, when we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal, deal gently with us. Are we serious this morning, just like David was serious? And are we at the point where we say, Lord, I will deal undignified with my sin, even if it has to be public, but I will deal with that. This morning we're standing also in the shadow of the cross just like David stood in the shadow that of, the, of the gospel that came to him. And we can say that Jesus has died for us. His blood was shed for us. And it is for our, our forgiveness. So for us this morning, it is that same word, Barak. So let us, Barak, this morning. Can we Barak before our Heavenly Father this morning to kneel? To bless God as an act of adoration. Lord, you are holy and I'm not. Simple. That is it. You are holy and I'm not. Can I bow down in adoration and I can worship you, Lord, for the plan that you've made, for the forgiveness of my sin? Can I fall down and again, can I kneel before you? Because, Lord, it is such an easy thing to do.
to kneel before you when I see myself in the face of who you are. I want us to listen to a song this morning. Uh, it is an old hymn, Rock of Ages. And I want us just to, just to sit and while the worship team comes up, uh, you know, he says there in the song, you know, I come with empty hands. And that is how we come, and we need to see how we come before the Lord. Because there's nothing that I can bring, you know, that can justify the forgiveness of my sin. If you carry on reading in Psalm 51, it says that, you know, God has got no, uh, no delight in sacrifice. There's no delight in sacrifice. In other words, I, even if I kill every single bull or every sheep that is in his time, you know, that still was not enough. Therefore, Christ came. Therefore, we stand this morning in the shadow of the cross and we say, Lord Jesus, thank you that I can rock this morning. Thank you that I can come with empty hands. You are my rock, Lord, because you're the only one that I can stand before. Let's listen to the song. <laughs> 